Welcome to the Robert J. Morgan Podcast, a podcast dedicated to helping you believe and cherish the Bible and to learn and love Christian history and hymnody. I'm Jared Brummett, audio engineer and editor, introducing your host, Robert J. Morgan. This episode is a message that Rob delivered at Shadow Mountain Community Church in El Cajon, California. As always, we'd like to invite you to visit robertjmorgan.com, where you'll find Rob's blog post, podcast feed, bookstore, free resources, and more. If you've not already, be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. Now, here's your host, Robert J. Morgan. Thank you, Manny, and thank all of you for allowing me to come back again this week, and especially to Dr. and Mrs. Jeremiah. I love them so much, and I'm excited that he's going to come back next week and repair the damage that I've done the last (laughs) two weeks. Uh, I have my grandson, Owen, with me. Last week, I had his younger brother, and Owen is just a wonderful travel companion. Yesterday, we went over to Coronado, and it's so beautiful there, and like Manny said, I have every day on social media a 59-second Bible study. I'm going through Zechariah, the prophet Zechariah right now, and we found so many wonderful little spots to, uh, to videotape those, and he became my videographer, and so I hope that you will watch for Coronado starting, I guess, tomorrow or the next day. And, uh, uh, and so, but today we have to leave immediately after I finish to get to the airport. We are going back east where it is cold. Now, I know some people have said that it's been chilly here, but the skies have been blue, the sun has been out, it's just beautiful here. But my cousin Jack told me it's so cold back east, he had to open his refrigerator door to heat the house. (laughs) He said it was so cold, he is looking forward to getting a fever, (laughs) and that his cows we're rubbing against the electric fence to stay, <laughs> to stay warm. <laughs> it's supposed to be snowing when we land in Nashville, so we are going to have fond memories of our weekend here. Uh, between last week and this week, I've been in the studio taping the audible version of my book, Whatever Happens, and it comes out in March. It's available for pre-order. Uh, but it's all about the, it's the study of the book of Philippians and the church in Philippians. So I, all of that has just been saturating my mind this week as I've, you know, done this audio recording. And uh, because the, the key verse in Philippians says, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. That's the key to the whole book. So I've been thinking a lot this week about Philippians, and this is a three-week stewardship emphasis here at Shadow Mountain. So, I want to talk to you about the church in Philippi. It is the New Testament's premier model for all of Christian history when it comes to giving. And I want to deal with three different passages of Scripture. One is in the book of Acts about the genesis or the founding of the church. Then in the book of Philippi, we'll go there and look at the generosity of the church. And we'll end up in 2 Corinthians looking at the grace that God gave the church. So, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Acts and chapter number 16. 
I'll tell you the lead-up to this story, and then we'll read the Scripture. But the Apostle Paul is on his second missionary journey. He took three of them, and he has left Antioch of Syria, which is now today in southern Turkey near the Syrian border. He went all the way across Asia Minor, which today we call the nation of Turkey, and it was one closed door after another for him. He didn't really understand it because he said, I got here and the Spirit of God wouldn't let me go in, and I got there and the Spirit of Christ wouldn't let me go in, and he went a thousand miles with closed doors because sometimes the Lord closes all of the doors so that we'll recognize the open one when we get to it. You know, for every one thing the Lord wants us to do, there may be a thousand things He doesn't. So, sometimes we just find closed doors, and we learn over time to accept that by faith because the Lord is guiding us. But in Troas, on the coast, right across the Aegean from Greece, northern Greece is Macedonia, southern Greece was called Achaia. But there in Troas, Paul had a vision at night, and it was a man from Macedonia. That's the only description of it. A man from Macedonia, a man, in other words, from Europe. Paul had always ministered in Asia. But now he had this vision of a man from Macedonia, northern Greece, who said, come over and help us. And Paul woke up understanding now that God wanted him to be in Europe. And the very next morning, who should he meet but Luke, the writer of the book of Acts. Now, I cannot prove that Luke was the Macedonian man in Paul's dreams, but my own opinion is that he was. Because just imagine, there was a medical school, we know that in Macedonia and Greek and uh, Philippi. So, Luke was a physician. He could have been a student or maybe a professor at that medical school. He might have been a Christian. He might have heard about Jesus somewhere. And he had been praying, maybe. All of this is hypothetical, but he might have been praying for a missionary to come into his region and help him. So, Paul has this dream. He sees this man saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And the next morning, he's walking down the street in Troas, and there is Luke. And Paul went up to him and said, I dreamed about you last night. Who are you? And he said, I'm Dr. Luke. I'm from Macedonia. Are you a Christian? Yes, I've been praying for someone to come and to evangelize my area. And Paul said, will you go with me and help me? And Luke said, yes. And so they crossed the Aegean with Silas and Timothy, the four of them, and they ended up in the city of Philippi. Now, I'm basing that whole hypothesis on one pronoun. So, look with me at Acts uh, chapter 16, verse 11. Acts 16, 11. Luke, the writer, said, Therefore, sailing from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace. Now, the we there is the first time this has occurred in the book of Acts. Luke wrote the book of Acts. When you read through it, when there are we passages, Paul, uh, Luke said, we boarded the ship. We went into the city. He's including himself. He is saying, I was there. When he says, Paul and his companions, they did this and they did that, then Luke wasn't personally there. He was just reporting what he learned later from his research. So, this is the first time in the book of Acts that Luke includes himself. It is the first of his we passages. 
So just when Paul had the Macedonian vision, somehow Luke showed up in his life at the same time. And Luke says, so we went over, the, we took the ship and we went over to Philippi. He said from there in verse 12, we went to Philippi, which is the foremost city in that part of Macedonia, a colony. We believe that Philippi was a great city, a Roman city, that had anywhere from 10 to 15,000 people, which was significant in those days. And we were staying in the city for some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went out of the city to the riverside where prayer was customarily made, and we sat down and spoke to the women who met there. Now, a certain woman named Lydia heard us. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira who worshiped God. Now, the city of Thyatira was over in Turkey or Asia Minor, but they were famous for their production of high-end purple cloth. Now, some of you are wearing purple. In those days, the only way to dye something purple was with the extracting a certain dye or, or substance out of sea creatures that they would discover. And so it was very hard to create that kind of purple, which was associated with royalty and with wealth. And so this was a very high-end commodity. You would only find that if you were very wealthy and you went in the very nicest shops. So Lydia was from there, apparently her family maybe, again I'm speculating, but you have to sort of read between the lines and imagine it. Her family had uh, a production here in this very rare, expensive kind of cloth, and they said, we need an outlet so we can sell this throughout Europe, and she said, well, I have a very good head for business, and this wealthy lady from the family came over to Philippi, and in the Agora she opened a very exclusive shop, and she was making money hand over fist with this particular very rare, rich fabric. So it says that the Lord opened her heart to heed the good things spoken by Paul. I love that phrase, and I use it in my prayers for other people who don't know the Lord. I say, it's a, you can borrow it right from the Bible here. Say, Lord, open their heart. And when she and her household were bab- and, and she took, so the Lord opened her heart and they, were, they received Christ and were baptized, she and her household. And she begged us, saying, If you have judged me faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she persuaded us. So she evidently had a very large house. Later, we learned the whole church was able to meet in it. So you can just visualize this. I mean, this is the beginning. The Lord here gives us how this church began to come together. And, uh, but the next person to be converted was on the opposite end of the social spectrum. It says in verse 16, now it happened as we went to prayer that a certain slave girl, and it goes on to describe this slave, this young lady who is in slavery, and Paul wins her to Christ. Now imagine in the same little meeting place there, probably in Lydia's house, you have one of the wealthiest women worshiping now side by side with a slave, they never would have met except in Jesus Christ. But because of what Paul did in casting out the demon, it created such a ruckus in Philippi that he and Silas, thankfully not Luke or Timothy, but half of the team, Paul and Silas, were dragged in front of the magistrates. They were stripped. They were tied up and brutally whipped. And then they were put in the prison in the innermost cell with their hands and feet stretched out in stocks 
so they couldn't even soothe their own wounds. And it says in verse 25, but at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Now, they did not have hymn books or walls with projection screens in that prison. It was black, but they had so many songs memorized. This is the value of not only singing newer music, but like we did in the service today, we also have older music that we sing over the course of a lifetime, certain songs that we sing at every stage in life, so we can internalize the lyrics. Paul and Silas had done this from the book of Psalms. Now, I think that they might have gone to Psalm 18 and were singing that. Psalm 18 says that I was in great distress and the enemy had hurt me and I cried unto the Lord and he heard me and came to my relief. And when he did so, the ground shook and the mountains trembled. That would have been a perfect song because that is exactly what happened here in Acts chapter 16. It says in verse 26, suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all of the doors opened and everyone's chains were loosed. It was a very unusual earthquake. What it did was to open all of the prisoners' doors and cause all of the chains to fall off the prisoners. Have you ever heard of an earthquake like that? And the keeper of the prison, awaking from sleep and seeing the prison doors open, supposed that the prisoners had fled. And he drew his sword and was about to kill himself. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do yourself no harm, we are all here. And the warden ran in, called for a light, ran in, and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? That is such a simple question. No one in the Bible asks a simpler question about how to come to Christ than this jailer. Last night in the service, there was a young lady, and she came forward and said to one of the pastors, how can I be saved? This is the exact question that we all need to ask until we meet Christ as Savior. We need to find that information that we have to know. And so Paul said, I'll tell you how. His answer was as simple as the question, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you should be saved and your family. And they were. And immediately they went out into the courtyard where there was some water and the jailer took some rags and washed the wounds of those two beaten apostles. And then in that bloody water, Paul baptized this jailer and his family and the church was growing again. So now you have Lydia, and you have the slave girl, and you have the prison warden, you have their families, and probably some of the prisoners. There was, I mean, this is prison ministry 101 right here in Acts chapter 16. So we, we see the beginning of the church. Now the next morning, the missionary party, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, were thrown out of town, but who stayed behind? Luke, look at chapter 17 and verse 1. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica. The we is gone. Luke, maybe Philippi, as I suggested, was his home, or at least where he was in school or a professor, but for whatever reason, 
He stayed behind. And can you just visualize now this wonderful church made up of these assorted individuals and their families meeting in the home of Lydia, probably with mosaics and murals and courtyards and plenty to eat and drink, and Luke there serving as the first pastor and helping them now to grow in Christ. So, that is the picture. Now, what happened after that? Paul went on to the city of Thessalonica. Remember that. It'll come up later. And then he went to Berea. And then he finished his second missionary tour. And then he did a third missionary tour. And then, in Jerusalem, he was getting ready to leave for his fourth missionary tour when he was seized and arrested. And he was imprisoned in Jerusalem. And then he was nearly assassinated, so they moved him to the Roman headquarters in Caesarea. And there he stayed for a good two years, waiting for his charges to come up and for his legal problems to to be dealt with. Finally, they said that they're going to send him to Rome. They put him on board a ship. It ran into a hurricane. It was shipwrecked, and he ended up like a drowned rat crawling onto the shore of Malta. And then he was in Malta for the winter, and then he made it onto Rome, and he was under house arrest in Rome. That's where the book of Acts ends. But all along the way, at every possible juncture, the Philippians sent him money. They just sent him money. The generosity of the church was remarkable. And when they found out that he was in Rome, and this was a dozen years after he had started the church, but when they found out he was in Rome, they said, we need to send Paul some money. He's a prisoner. He's under house arrest. He may end up in the prison waiting for his trial, and he doesn't have any money for food because prisoners had to provide for their own needs. He doesn't have money for clothing. He doesn't have anyone to look after him. He might need some simple herbs or medicines or supplements, and he needs someone to help wash his clothes. And what can we do to take care of that man? And a man raised his hand. His name was uh, Epaphroditus. And he said, I will go. If you'll take the collection, I will take the money to Rome. And I will stay with Paul, and I will take care of him. I'm free from responsibility right now. I can do it. I know all of the rest of you are very, very busy, but if you'll give the money, I will take it and be his servant. I will just meet his needs. So they took up yet another offering for him. They were his primary supporting church, as we would say today. And Epaphroditus guarded that money and took it. It was either 800 or 1,100 miles, depending upon the route, Uh, whether by land or by sea, and it would have taken several months probably, at least a good six or seven weeks by the shortest route to get there. But finally, Epaphroditus, his money intact, showed up in Rome, hunted down the Apostle Paul, walked in and said, I have been looking for you. I'm from the Philippians. Yes, I remember you in Philippi. Well, I have brought you this offering. Look at this money we raised for you. Plus, I'm going to stay and take care of you. I will be glad to wash your clothes and dry them and iron them, and I'll be glad to take care of any food you need and the food preparation, and when you entertain people coming into your rented place under house arrest, then I will entertain them for you, and and whatever you need, I'm just here to help you. But he got sick. 
he developed a fever. It got worse and worse, and Paul ended up taking care of him. And finally, the man recovered, barely, but he got his strength back, and Paul said, you know, I'm going to send you back. I appreciate all you've done, but I want you to go back and tell the Philippians how I'm doing, and I'm going to write a letter to them, and I want you to take the letter back. So Paul sat down, and he wrote the letter, which today we call the book of Philippians. And he sent it by Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus made it back to Philippi. And there in Philippi, just imagine everybody gathering in Lydia's house, Whoever the pastor was at that time stood up and said, we've got a letter from Paul, Epaphroditus is back, and he sent a letter from Paul, and everybody with bated breath waited as they unscrolled that parchment and began to read the letter of Philippians for the first time. Now, I just want to give you two paragraphs here from Philippians. So, look at chapter number two. This will this is where I'm, the, the particular story that I've told you really is extrapolated here from Philippians 2, beginning with verse 25. Philippians 2:25. Yet I considered it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker, and fellow soldier, but your messenger and the one who ministered to my need, since he was longing for you all and was distressed because you heard that he was sick. For indeed, he was sick, almost unto death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but also on me, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I sent him the more eagerly, that when you see him again, you may rejoice, and I may be less sorrowful. Receive him, therefore, in the Lord with all gladness, and hold such men in esteem, because for the work of Christ he came close to death, not regarding his life, to supply what was lacking in your service toward me. Don't look down on Epaphroditus because he's back sooner than you thought he would be. He's a hero. He nearly died for the sake of Christ. And now he has borne my letter to you. So honor people like that and hold him in esteem. That gives us the background. And then at the very end of the letter, Paul officially thanks them for the gift. Chapter 4 and verse 10. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last your care for me has flourished again, though you surely did care, but you lacked the opportunity. You've sent me another gift. I know that you wanted to do it before, but there was no way to get it to me. But now you found Epaphroditus. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. This is one of the Bible's great passages about contentment. And I've looked at this word and studied it, and I just have a two-word definition. And this came after a lot of thought, but it's very simple. I think the contentment is basically quiet joy. It is quiet joy. It's not loud joy. It's not exuberance. Like when the choir sings, How Great Thou Art, and we can hardly deal with it because of the exuberance that we feel in our own hearts. It's quiet joy. It's like the purring of a cat or a warm bath on a cold night or campfire sitting around with a mug of coffee. It's a wonderful thing, this quiet joy. It's a hot cup of tea. And so we have this quiet 
joy that says, I know that things aren't very good. I know that I'm in prison. I know that there is sickness. I know that I've got this problem in my family, but the Lord is with me. And I have this quiet joy, this contentment that only comes from the Lord. He said, I have learned to be content. And he goes on to say in verse 12, I know how to be abased and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I have learned, both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer needs. I can do all things, I can do all this through Christ who strengthens me. The secret to contentment, the Lord has secrets. He reveals this one to us. It's Jesus himself. When Jesus is in your heart, you can have quiet joy regardless of what's going on. You may not feel exuberant, but this quiet joy, and Paul said, that's what I feel. Nevertheless, you have done well that you shared in my distress. Now, you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, back in Acts chapter 16, when I showed up in your city, and then I departed from Macedonia, um, now, you Philippians know, I'll go back to verse 15, also, that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving, but you only, for even in Thessalonica, you sent me aid once and again for my necessities. You remember when Paul left Philippi with Silas and Timothy, he went over not far away to Thessalonica. And even then, the Philippians said, well, let's send him some money. They have traveling expenses. They have food expenses. They have clothing expenses. Let's send them some money. So from the very beginning, the Philippian church supported the Apostle Paul financially. And all through the years they did, Paul said in verse 17, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. Indeed, I have all and abound. I am full, receiving from Epaphroditus the things sent from you, a sweet-smelling aroma. I'm an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. Whenever you give the Lord a contribution for His glory and in worship to Him for the support of His ministries, it is a sweet-smelling aroma that goes up to Him. It is an acceptable sacrifice, and it is pleasing to God. Verse 19, and my God shall supply all of your need according to His riches and glory by Christ Jesus. The promise that God will provide for all of our need is one that He gave to the Philippians because they were providing for Paul's needs. What a wonderful passage this is. In Philippians, it shows the generosity of the Philippians. But there is one other portion of Scripture that is very telling about this. It's in 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9. 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9, and this talks about the grace of the Philippians. So, in chapter 8, verse 1, moreover, brethren, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia. What were the churches of Macedonia? It was primarily the Philippians. I mean, that was the primary church in Macedonia. There were various congregations in that city, also maybe Thessalonica, also maybe Berea, but primarily here, Paul is saying, I want to tell you about the grace that God has given to these Philippians. And now he gives us what I call 
divine geography when it comes to giving. Divine geography. There are three tributaries that make one river. You have this stream flowing in, this stream flowing in, this stream flowing in, and they form one river. And the river is our liberality in giving financially to the Lord's work. What are the tributaries? Look at this in verse number two. That in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the richness of their liberality. No one else would say anything like I mean, this is divine stuff. This is God's way of working in a way that doesn't make sense in human terms. But here the Philippians had a great affliction. Something was going on that was tremendously disturbing them, and it was probably persecution-related. But they had enormous joy on the inside. But they were poverty-stricken. Maybe even Lydia had lost her wealth. But somehow, in God's wonderful providence, the tremendous affliction, the overwhelming joy, and the poverty came together to form a river of generous giving. Verse 3, for I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability, they were willing freely, imploring us with much urgency that we would receive the gift and the fellowship for the ministry of the saints. And not only as we hope, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to the will of God. So, there is the order. You say, Lord, I'm giving myself to you. And then you say, Lord, I'm giving myself to your will, whatever that is. And then you say, Lord, I'm giving myself to give whatever it is of mine to you because it all belongs to you anyway because I've already committed my life and all that I have top to toe to Jesus Christ. It is yours. So, what would you like for me to do? Now, that is the stewardship model of the Bible. It is the Philippians. And he went on to say in verse number 9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, think of his riches, you can't even, there's no way to calculate it. I mean, up in heaven, all of the galaxies, the far-flung reaches of this infinite, almost infinite universe, all of the unseen world, everything, including this planet and a thousand hills and all of the cattle on them, it all belongs to him. And yet, when he died, he didn't even have the clothes on his own back. He was as broke as anyone ever was. So that through his poverty, you and I might be wealthy forever, sharing his riches as heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. What a verse. And then over in chapter 9, Paul continues. He says in verse 6, but this I say, he who sows sparingly, and he's talking here about our financial gifts, will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So, let each one give. This is maybe the best verse about stewardship in all of the Bible. Let each one. Children, teenagers, adults, everyone, let each one give as he purposes in his heart. Not just on impulse, but you sit down and you think about it, and you purpose in your heart, this is what I'm going to do for the Lord. And let each one give 
as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity. For God loves a cheerful giver. And the promise is in verse 8. And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, not just some, but all of it, that you always, not just sometimes, but always, having all sufficiency, not just some sufficiency, but all of it, in all things, not just in some things, but in all things, may have an abundance in every good work, not just some of them, but all of them, all, 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 all. It comes from God to you as you're faithful to Him. What an incredible verse this is. And he ends up in verse number, the last verse of the chapter, it's 15, saying, thanks be to God for His indescribable gift. So, the Philippian church is for all of Christian history, the model, the New Testament sets forth of a church in which the members are generous and giving. Now, how does that work for us? I grew up in a little town in the mountains called Elizabethton, Tennessee. And my pastor, when I was born, was a man named Harvey Hill, married to Sylvia. And he was just a little peppery fellow full of energy, always smiling and grinning. And he had a tremendous influence on my parents. And my dad was a deacon in the church, and my mother taught Sunday school. And Harvey later in life became a youth pastor. He was in his 80s, and the young people loved him. He also wrote a little book about his life, and I treasure that book. And he said that when he and Sylvia were married, it was during the Great Depression. They didn't have a car. Few people did. He said, we walked to church. We walked to see friends. We walked to get a cup of coffee if we could afford one. Everywhere we went, we walked. Barely had enough money to live. And he said, one day the pastor of our church said, Harvey, are you giving to the Lord? Are you tithing? And Harvey said, no, sir. He said, I I want to, but I don't have enough money. And the pastor said to him, well, just try it and see if God doesn't bless you. And that one sentence just got into his mind and heart, and he and Sylvia thought about it, and they began giving, and they found the Lord blessed them, And that became for them a lifetime pattern, which not only they practiced, but he preached. Because I remember as a child, sitting in the kitchen on a Saturday night, watching my mother and father sit down and write out their checks. Back then, people used checks. And putting them in the offering envelope and would, you know, write down what they needed to write down on it so that they could drop it in the offering plate the next day. And I know that that influence came, at least in part, from Harvey Hill. And so, it's no wonder that when I was just beginning to make a little money at this or that, I don't know whether I just knew it, you know, by osmosis from my parents, having watched them, or whether they instructed me, but I began giving a portion of what I received to the Lord and putting it in the offering plate. And I've been doing that now all of my life, even though I'm up now in the seasoned years, I'm still doing it. And I think it all comes from that little sentence that the pastor said to Harvey Hill, try it and see if the Lord doesn't bless you. There's a very dear friend of mine, Owen has been with me up in Ventura, California when I preached up there for Leonard DeWitt. He's a pastor. He's the man who led actor Steve McQueen to the Lord. But he has a very similar story. He said that when he and his wife were married, he decided he would give 10% of his income every week to the Lord. So, they made up that 
they made that decision and they sat down and the, on Saturday night they wrote out the electric bill and they paid the utilities and they paid the grocery bill and, and they paid all of the bills and at the end of it they didn't have 10%. They had hardly anything left. And Leonard said, I was so frustrated. And the next week the same thing and the next week the same thing. And I prayed, I said, Lord, I want to give you 10%, but I never have it left. And he said, the Lord whispered back to me and said, give to me first. And Leonard said, I had a panic attack. I thought if I do that, I'll not have enough to pay the bills. But he said, the strangest thing happened. I still don't understand it, but I wrote the check first for the Lord, and there was enough money for every single other check that I had. And he said, it's been the same all of these years. I don't understand it, but the Lord somehow provides. There was, I heard about a man named John Raskus. He was older. He was in a church, not quite this big. But he had $300 one Sunday, and he put it in the offering plate when it passed. They had offering plates back then. And as he put the money in there, he looked down and said rather loudly, I'll see you again in heaven. And the people looking around thought, poor John Raskus, he's getting senile. He thinks he'll see that money again in heaven. He may see the master in heaven, but he's not going to see that money. And by and by, John died. The treasurer had taken that $300 and had used some of it to pay the electric bill, had given some of it to the pastor to pay for gasoline for his visitation, had used some of it to help support a ministerial school for young preachers, and had sent the rest of it for missionary causes. So when John got up to heaven, he was looking around, walking down that street that was glimmering and shining with this golden color and the translucent, wonderful emerald-colored buildings all around, and the song that somehow just filled the atmosphere and the fragrance from the flowers such as had never smelled before. And he was just caught up in the wonder of it all. And he came upon a man who stopped him and said, you're John Raskus, aren't you? I've been waiting for you to get here. He said, one day when I was a young man, I was walking down the street and I was very low and very discouraged and dark on the inside. But I passed by the church and the lights were on, and through the windows it was so warm and glowing that I went in, and I listened to the preacher that night, and I received Jesus as my Savior, and I'm here because you helped pay to put those lights on in the church. And he said, a little later I went to a little gathering in heaven, people fellowshipping together, and a man said, you're John Raskus, aren't you? He said, I've been waiting for you to get here. I want to thank you because well, I worked down at the gas station, and the pastor came by on the way to the hospital to do some visitation, and I put gas in his car. They used to do that. And he said, the pastor shared the gospel with me, and he said, I came to the Lord because you helped to pay for that gasoline. And John went a little further into glory, and he came to a great square where some people came up to him, a whole family of people. And they said, you know, we are all Christians in our family because that ministerial school that you helped support, they sent some ministers into our area, and one of them started a church in our town, and we all found Christ as Savior 
and it's because you supported us. And then later on, he got to an area where there were people speaking a foreign language, but somehow he could understand every word they were saying. And they said to him, you're John Raskus, aren't you? Well, some of the money that you used, that you gave, well, you know, the missionaries, you supported them, and they came into our very remote area, and they established a preaching center, and we heard the gospel, and we're here because you helped support those missionaries. And John's heart was so full and so thankful, and he walked down, and he got to Hallelujah Square, and there was an angel there. And he looked over and he said to that angel, I'm so glad to meet you and I'm so glad to be here where I can see all of the angels and you guys are wonderful. But he said, I feel a little sorry for you. You will never know exactly what it's like to be redeemed by the shed blood of Jesus Christ the way that us humans have been redeemed. And you will never exactly know the wonder of seeing your earthly possessions transformed into eternal results. And the angel said, no, sir. We'll never know that. All we can do is to watch from heaven in amazement. This is what the Lord allows us to be a part of. A dime, a dollar, check, a gift. And you give it to the Lord for His worship and he transmutes it into eternal dividends, and we end up laying up treasures for ourselves in heaven, as Jesus said. Now, the last verse of 2 Corinthians 9 says, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. That's at the basis of it all, and that gift is Jesus himself and the eternal life that he brings. The Bible says the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. And there may be someone here, a young person, maybe a teenager, you're in this service, or maybe you're a young adult, you might be in the military, you might be, a, you might be in the Navy, you have never received Jesus Christ as your Savior, and you don't know if you were to die today if you'd go to heaven. But you can know, you can do like this Philippian jailer and say, what must I do to be saved? And if you're in this room, there'll be pastors here, at the very front, and they'll say, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you can be saved, and they will lead you in praying to receive Christ as your Savior. You can leave here this morning with this being the greatest single day of your life. And if you're watching online, maybe you're not sure that Jesus Christ is your Savior, but you would like to receive Him now. Well, it's a very simple thing just to bow your head, and as best you know how, say, dear Lord, I confess my sins, I'm sorry, but I come to you recognizing that Jesus died for me and rose again. I am here receiving him as my Savior. And then you'll find someone who can help you to get a Bible and begin reading it and learn to pray and find a church to go to and be baptized and begin to grow in the daily habits of the Christian walk. But that is the basis then of the new life that turns us into people who understand generosity and grace and who know that God loves cheerful givers because we all have one thing in common. We say, thanks be to God for His indescribable
gift. Jesus. Will you bow your heads with me in prayer? And now, dear Lord, if there is that fellow in the armed forces, that child or teenager, or maybe someone older, but they need Jesus today, Lord, may they come and say, how can I be saved? Lord, if someone is watching and they want to receive Christ as Savior, may right now at this moment they bow their heads, maybe a whole family together, and receive Jesus Christ. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved, said the Apostle Paul, says the Bible. And Lord, teach us as your followers to be just as generous as you will for us to be and to be cheerful as givers and to be thankful as receivers for you give us so very much. And all we can do is to say thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for digging into the riches of the Bible with me. This episode was produced by Joshua Rowe and the marketing company, Clearly Media. Audio editing and engineering is done by Jared Brummett. Editorial supervision is by Sherry Anderson. And Luke Tyler takes each of these episodes, condenses them, adds an opening outline, and post them as blogs on my website at robertjmorgan.com where you can find many other resources. Music is by Jordan Davis. Thank you for tuning in, and may God be with you until we meet again.